Well, thanks a bunch, Anchor. I appreciate you guys. Anchor provides all of the uh, all of the uh, support for my podcast and distribution. Of course, as always, today's podcast is brought to you by Solderwell, the guys that make you uh, hot block and uh, and all sorts of cool products. So you can check them out at solderwell.com. And we even have a new uh, sponsor just for today's podcast, and that is the guys and gals over at Lucas Millhop. The original since 1931, and they are making lasting connections. So today's podcast is a really special one. It's it's with a gentleman named Bob Kristan. And Bob, you may know as Bob the Brazer. Um, I met Bob at AHR Expo in Orlando, Florida this year. And like many of us, we see this really incredibly handsome bald guy. And uh, is that true? I think that's true. And and we see him doing these training classes and training sessions at trade shows and companies all across the country. But do we really know who Bob the Brazer is? And and my answer was no, because when I met him at AHR, Bob, by accident, when I asked him, I says, well, how long have you been doing this? He says, well, I've only been doing the, the Lucas Millhop stuff for about nine years. And I said, well, yeah, but what about before that? And then all of this trade HVAC refrigeration trade stuff came forward, and I was like, "Oh my God, we got to get him on a podcast." So welcome, Bob. Thank you for having me. You started in the trade a long time ago, and you've been a tradesman and a teacher. When did you get into the trade? I graduated from a. I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin originally. I'm living in California now. But uh, I graduated from a uh, technical college in HVAC and refrigeration in 1976. So my career basically started in the trade in 1976. But did you have somebody in your neighborhood or your family that was a tradesperson or tradesman that said, you know, Bob, this is the direction? How did you get into the trade? My my father was in the trade. He was a, a, a plumber, and though he didn't necessarily encourage me to, to follow that path, I, I saw it as, a, as an interesting way to go because I wasn't necessarily what you would call college material at that time, but I, I was always fairly good hands-on. So I stumbled upon this trade really by accident. I went to school and talking to a one of the instructors there and advisors, they pushed me into the direction of HVAC and refrigeration. And that's that's when I really became interested is, was in that at that time. Your dad was a plumber, so was he upset that you went into that part of the trade, or did he want his son to be a plumber? No, no, not at all. Uh, I think he was, he was very encouraged that I went into the trades, but he didn't necessarily need or want me to go into plumbing direction, no. Uh, as it turns out, as the career developed, I ended up being, you know, and when you are in HVAC and refrigeration, you tend to be an electrician, a plumber, uh, and all the various other trades besides. You develop most of those along the way. When you went into school and you we were going through the program in 1976, I would assume it was 1976, and That's the year I graduated. That was when you graduated, so you actually started probably, what, in 74, 75? Right, 
uh, 74. It was a two-year program. Now, was it was it pushed as part of your high school curriculum? Because I know in the 70s and 80s, shop, you know, shop was was king. Did you have shop? It, Did that help you? Uh, as a matter of fact, I went to a, a, a Catholic high school, so shop classes were very few and far between, and I don't, I don't recall taking any in high school. Uh, so anything that I developed as far as interest was unfortunately not through the high school at that time. When you went through your air conditioning program, and you eventually became a teacher yourself, and we'll talk about that later on, when you went through the air conditioning program, what were some of the things that you see that you're doing now in the trade that you were taught back then that you don't do now? I mean, it's, it's is, is the theory, the theory is the same understanding the principle is the same. I would assume everything was analog meters, uh, Simpson voltmeters, Simpson amp meters, clamp ons, things like that. Correct. Uh, the biggest change is, uh, is the electronic side and, when I, for my first job in 76 was working for a contractor who did a lot of, of uh, restaurant HVAC and refrigeration. But on the side, he was doing this electronic work and he basically developed himself into a, what was very early part of the, you know, uh, called energy management systems, actually developing a lot of uh, printed circuit boards and things of that nature. And then his company developed that so that's the biggest change I now is all the electronics that are involved in, in the trade as far as controls applications and whatnot. When you when you but what else did you do in the trade? I mean, were you only doing HVAC or did you do sheet metal? You know what what were you doing? Oh well, when I first started, it was just strictly service work. I was doing HVAC and refrigeration at my first job. Uh, as I developed. And I changed jobs over the years. And I worked for six different contractors basically in 35 years. What I did is I migrated more into the commercial refrigeration sector. And that's where I was, that's where I developed my, uh, my brazing skills because we do, did a lot of installation work at that time. Did a lot of supermarket work and, and, and things of that nature that afforded me the opportunity to braze a lot. When, uh... So you were doing a lot of bra- did you were you a pipe fitter? Did you do service yes. work? So you did a lot of pipe fitting. Yes, I was basically in, in Wisconsin. I was considered what's called a refrigeration steam fitter. Hmm. So I did commercial uh, refrigeration work. Supermarkets was probably the the biggest uh, market that I worked in, and then I finished my career doing a lot of uh, computer room air conditioning work, which is again still piping. And installation and startup. When you got into, uh, you know, I'm curious about the refrigeration stuff and the supermarket side. So back then, it wasn't the rack systems that you see today with, you know, floating suction and floating head pressure and stuff. I would assume it was more one on one. Yes. uh, But, you know, when we got back into the 80s and early 90s, then then the, the racks came to fruition, and basically that's all and still is, you know, what, what compromises the refrigeration industry. So, but yes, there, there was a lot of individual units. We, you know, we called them machine rooms. We'd go into a machine room in a large grocery store, and there was nothing but probably 40 to 50 individual units in a, in a, in a compressor room 
and now that compressor room would be a, a parallel rack. So that that developed over the years from that point, yes. All all of it, I would assume, was R12 and 502? R12 on the medium temp side, R502 on the low, yes. And then in the, I don't know if I get my years correct, in the in the late late 90s, then we did the, what we called conversion work, but mm-hmm. we went away from those two refrigerants, yes. Right, and that's when I went. I got into markets. Was was in the mid '90s to late '90s, and 502 was going away, and we were doing conversions. And then R22 was the big one with demand cooling and fan and head, you know, uh, head body cooling fans and external oil coolers because you know so much heat. Correct. Yes, R22 was was always a very popular refrigerant, but it wasn't necessarily the best choice especially in the low temp applications. Uh, but then that was, and is almost totally phased out now altogether. How were you for tools? Were you a tool guy or did the company provide all the tools? Well, what my career basically was split half between non-union and union. Union was my second half of my career. And it did vary from one uh, contract to the next. I mean, firstly, you know, early on, nothing was supplied, and everything I had to to, to bring to to the table myself. And then my last couple of jobs, basically, they supplied everything. But I was the type of guy that, you know, I was kind of a tool guy. I always liked to have the the best, and I I didn't mind making the investment in own into my own tools because then I like to take care of them. So as you went through the trade. Somewhere along the line, you became a teacher, correct? Yes. Uh, kind of, that's an interesting story. I, I was working at a contractor, and at that time I was a, was a, a conservative journeyman, and I had a lot of, of apprentices working with me. And one in particular, his name was Tony, he went through the five-year apprenticeship program, you know, as, and I was his, his journeyman. And he completed the program and became a journeyman. And shortly thereafter, he came up to me and said, Bob, I'm going to leave the trade and I'm going to go and teach. And I said, really, Tony? He said, yeah. I said, well, you don't have all that much experience in the field. And he said, well, but he, he did have a four-year degree here and he was kind of an unusual sort that way. So, but he said to me, Bob, I think you'd be a, a real good asset, you know, on that side. And at that time, I really never thought much about it. After that conversation, it kind of made me think of it. And a couple of years later, I was afforded the opportunity to to interview for a position of, as a, a refrigeration instructor at the at WT, which is a local community college in, in Milwaukee. But when you got into the as a teacher side of it, and you didn't have anything, were they more impressed with your trade background or your presence or the way you spoke? What? What made somebody go, wow, Bob can be a teacher? Well, uh, what they were looking for at that time was, and it was difficult to find somebody because at that time it was just a part-time position, and what they were looking for is somebody that was knowledgeable in the field, and at that point I already had nearly 20 years of experience. But the the person that uh, was interviewing me, and he told me later, he, he said he saw in me the, the ability to communicate with people, and he thought that along with the experience I had, I, it would be a very good combination. And it 
it turned out to be because uh, working with him and others at the school, I you know developed my teaching skills. And then once you understand how to teach, you know if you're comfortable with with what you're teaching, it really becomes a very, very, very interesting and very rewarding career in itself. Was there a difference in the way that trade schools recruit now when when you were a teacher than when they did in the 70s? Uh, I think right now, I mean, at least what I tried to develop was the ability for the for the student to be a self-thinker. Uh, some people have the ability to work with their hands, and but some people cannot take tests. But what's important is, in this business, you have to understand the theory behind what you're trying to fix in order to be able to fix it. So uh, back then, it was pretty much a not nuts and bolts kind of thing. But now, now the your ability to troubleshoot is going to be more than just your ability to use your hands anymore. So, but my question though is, like when I was in high school, trade schools, and this was when I was in the 80s, the early 80s, high, trade schools would come in and do presentations about the trade schools and or recruiters and say, this is the opportunity for you. And I'm sure they did that in the 70s because uh, you weren't that far behind me. I think I was, or ahead of me, I was about five or six year difference. But today, today they didn't do that. When my son graduated, you know, five years ago, six years ago, trade schools didn't come in and recruit. Uh, no, no. I, I think I came from an era where, uh, you know, there was still a lot of production and jobs and people worked in factories. So uh, they, nowadays, you're right, there doesn't appear to be as much uh, promoting of technical schools and trades. Uh, anymore, everybody seems to want to their children to go to the four-year university and get a degree. But uh, there are a lot of people out there that do that, spend the time in the college scene for four years, and then find out. And, and I knew several people that that did that, and then went back into the trade themselves. So uh, I think at this point, we need to really promote, you know, the the good side of, of the trades and how how you can. I'll parlay that into a career just like a four-year degree would be for anyone else. Was it hard for you, though, to transition from a tradesman to a teacher? Was it because, you know, guys out in the field, we, we got a potty mouth, and we like to have a good time. And then all of a sudden you became a teacher. Was it, was it a difficult transition, or was it a natural flow? Well, yes, you're right. You have to... You do have to separate yourself to some extent. But what I found when I taught a two-year program is that early on, until I became comfortable with the students, who then I would see you know, once a week for the next two years, you know, then you know, your guard kind of comes down after a while. But you do have to, you know, when you initially meet people, you don't know how how they will react to anything you say. So you, you tend to be a little more guarded until you're more comfortable with them, and they're comfortable with you as well. I mean, it works both ways. How did it, though, go when you were a teacher? Did you think about the time that you were, as a student, to the students that you saw 20 years later? Was there a difference in the 
in the mindset of the younger people? Was it was there a difference in the way the content was being absorbed? Uh, right. You know, now uh, when I went to school, you know, there was no PowerPoint presentations. Everything was basically you read it and then you you'd go into a lab. Now you can basically simulate anything on your computer and and then and then take it into the lab and work at it that way. So the biggest difference is I think there are a lot more tools to be used as an instructor now than there was when I went to school. And if you're, if you're an effective, effective instructor, you want to touch all the different avenues that it takes to reach all the different students. So when, you, when you're teaching today, well, not today, 10 years ago, 9 years ago, when you were teaching it, you taught for what, 20 years, I, I believe? Yes, just up until recently. I, I taught from uh, 2000 to 2020. So I just I just retired from teaching about six months ago. Do we as a trade then, if you think back to the seventies, do we as a trade today and I ask this almost on every podcast, do we do enough to advertise and to promote the trades as an alternative? Because you said something which was correct. Like not everybody is designed to be a test taker, not everybody is designed to be their hands and nuts and bolts and stuff, right? Correct. Correct. But do we do as uh, enough? Do we do enough as an industry to promote it? Uh, no, we don't. Uh, I know that there there are different avenues now being taken that uh, are trying to reach you know a more wide background of students because there's a, a great loss or lack of people going into the trades and what. But I think a lot of students have to realize, for potential students, is that they don't necessarily need a four-year degree, you know. I mean, ultimately, what we want is a job that will sustain yourself and your family and one that you're happy with. And that doesn't necessarily have to come from a four-year degree or college degree. I mean, I when I went through, you know, I considered my apprenticeship uh, my four-year four-year degree. I basically worked and went to school for four years during my apprenticeship program. And, you know, that's basically, it, the biggest difference is that I walked away after four to five years with a job and no debt, where now students are, are sitting on a huge, huge debt and not necessarily a job. But, you know, there's, we still need people in college. And I think that's the blue collar as they move forward with advertising the positives and successes. I mean, I don't think everybody is designed to be, you know, in a blue-collar job. I think we still need people with college degrees that, you know, doctors and lawyers and 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 people like that. Oh, so, there's, there's no doubt about it, right. When, when you look back into your time in the industry before you were a teacher... I would assume you had some highs and lows. What, oh, yes. What were some of the highs? And because I'm gonna, the reason I ask it is, yesterday on Facebook, or two days ago on Facebook, a, a post was done on a tech who said, you know what, I, I'm looking back at it now going, what am I doing here? Somebody who's been in the trade as long as you have, did you ever look back at your time and go, what am I doing here? 
this is, you know, did I make the right choice? How did you overcome that for somebody who is just starting out in the trade and maybe thinking that very thing? Well, the biggest thing that people will have to overcome, especially if they're in the ACC and especially if they're in commercial refrigeration, is that the hours tend to be, they're all over the place. I think that was the biggest thing for me to, to overcome is that once I got married and had children, uh, the, the problem was that when you were on call, that you would not be available for a lot of social things because, you know, a customer would call you and have to go. And it, in the commercial refrigeration, that's 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. You know, not necessarily any one given person, but then the company has to be available. So I was fortunate, and my wife always was, was willing to back me up because I was basically the, the breadwinner. My wife was the stay-at-home mom, and I had the ability to, to make to make enough money to support her and the, you know, my two girls. And where I, now I think a lot of people, you know, the, the women want to have a career, and there's nothing wrong with that, of course. But if if you're in this trade, you have to be able to give up some some time and. Sometimes that time runs into the holidays, into social things that you may may or may not miss. But what people tend to forget, though, is that the rewards of working those kind of hours monetarily really pay back pretty quickly. So, you know, my ability to make—I'm sorry, go ahead. So, your ability to make more money during those times are offset by the fact that, well, now I can still go on a vacation, be comfortable about it, you know where in other you know now that varies you know there's highs and lows you know sometimes work slows down too so you know it's you have to be able to to balance your life and your your off time and your work time and that that was the biggest hurdle was to be able to do that so uh, the other thing I found out though is that the better I got at this the easier it became to go on calls in the middle of the night and not have to sweat through whether I could work them out or not. It was just, okay, I got to go. You know, we'll, we'll head into this with our open mind, and, you know, I can be back home in a couple of hours. Well, I mean, what you said is true. I remember when I was doing refrigeration work in the 90s, and I think... I had to miss my son, some of my son's Little League baseball games. And, you know, now he's an adult and he's in his middle 20s. And he's in the business and the trade in Los Angeles. Shout out to Norman S. Wright. Woo-woo, Norman S. Wright. And um, in, in Los Angeles, Anaheim area. But I said, well... And I'd asked him later on, you know, it was a few years ago. I said, "Well, do you do you, do you remember Dad not not being there for your little league games?" And he's like, "Nope, not remember." I'm like, "Well, man, Dad," I said, "Dude, you know, I, I missed a lot of your games." He goes, "What I remember is we never had to worry. I had a roof over my head, and we were taking trips, and we were whenever I needed anything for baseball, it was done." Like, that's what they remember. They don't remember what we think they do. I, I think you, you tend to put that kind of pressure more upon yourself. I, I think that was a good thing to ask your, your son that question, because I'd ask that of my, 
my daughters as well. I said, do you think I ever missed anything? And they look at me like, what do you mean? You didn't miss anything. You know, you were, you were there. You, you got to, you know, when you can, when you can be there, you have to be there. You should be there. And when you can't, and when I say the things I missed, it wasn't all that often, but occasionally, it, you know, something would come up and you'd have to. But you, you, you've got to be able to be, uh, you know, again, I, I, I credit my wife for giving me all the support in the world. And uh, both my girls were, were very supportive as well. You know, they always were interested when I come home from work. They'd jump in the back of my truck and they would, uh, you know, what did you do today, Dad? You know, so... I was always, I was very fortunate. I, I know there are a lot of families out there that, that tend not to, to like to give up that kind of stuff, but, uh, it, it's not like it's your whole career and it's not like it's every day and it's not every holiday. So, yeah, that, that's what you have to get over. Yeah, I mean, my, my son was little and my daughter was little and he's, and they're, they're, my daughter's older than him by two years. And so, they would stand in the back of the van, like I'd bring the van home, uh, you know, I'd, on the end of the day, or and I'd be like, "Well, today we're cleaning out the van," and because I always liked a really clean van, and they would get up inside the van and play with all the stuff in the racks, and help me throw the stuff away, and help me. I mean, they were only cleaning from like just above the tires, but they would, you know, they were little then, and they would go out and help, you know wash the van and keep the truck clean or whatever I had. And those are memorable times. And what you said is true because I think trades people, men and women, we put the pressure on ourselves and when really the family is okay as long as they have a roof over their head and they're doing just fine. Exactly. And, and we never had any problems financially. We always had food on the table. Again, the roof over their head. Uh, went on lots of holidays and lots of vacations. And uh, uh, I, I personally think, uh, and I'm not trying to zero out any other type of career choice, but I think if I look back on all my friends who had degrees and it became, you know, accountants and whatever, uh, financially, I'm I'm probably better off than most of they. Most of them are, you know, at this point in time in my life, because a lot of them are, I, you know, I, since I spent the last 10 years of my career here working part-time, I was able to retire at 55 years old, where I don't think most people have the ability to do that anymore. No, and I'm 57, or 57? I have to think about it now. Um, and I know that I'm 56, and so I'm in that spot. I don't think I'm going to be able to retire, but I have a goal. You know, I'll have 35 years next year, and I have a goal that says, well, if I can hit 40 when I'm 62, that's that's a good number. Um, and and I don't really want to retire. I don't know what I would do. I mean, I watched my mom and dad. My mom and dad retired, and then within a few years, they were back to work. Um, it just didn't make any sense. And that's what you did. So as you went through your your teaching, as you're moving through your teaching career, this this company shows up, I would assume, right? Lucas Millhop, they show up. How did your relationship yep. with them start? What's the story behind that? Well, that's also an interesting... I was working a supermarket installation in the Milwaukee area, 
and my boss at the time said, uh, there's a couple of people that are going to be coming to the job site, and they want to show you some product. He says, you know, give them some time to do what they want to do. He said, you know, don't spend a whole day with them, of course. But uh, so they came, and it was two representatives of Lucas Millhop. It was an engineer, and it was a, a regional sales manager for the company, and they had some products that they wanted me to try. So the engineer that they brought at that time said, okay, uh, you know, here's some of the products we have. And, you know, and I said, well, can I try them? And I tried them, you know, with them and, you know, develop a, a nice rapport there. And so they were, at the time, they were just trying to test the market for these products. And uh, after we did this, uh, the sales manager came up to me and said, Bob, would you be interested in doing any kind of training for us, you know, we're looking for a person that might have the ability to, you know, teach people how to braise and how to select different brazing alloys, different situations. And he said, it looks like you have what it may take. And I said, well, you know, I never really thought about it, but at that time I was nearing towards the end of my career, or at least I was hoping at the time, I thought to myself, you know, this would be a nice transition where I still be in touch with what I do but not, uh, not every day, you know, uh, of things. So uh, they hired me on, and you know, that's where I am today, you know. Nine years later, here I am, you know, traveling around the country doing phrasing seminars and contacting a lot of people and working with a lot of people that basically did the same thing that I did when I was in the trade. But when you when the opportunity came... And you were probably still in the trade, and you were teaching at the same time? Yes, I was. So actually, for a while there, I was actually working three jobs. And I was, I was working for Lucas Millhop occasionally, right. still teaching two nights a week, and then working at my day job in the trade. Wow. And the kids and the daughters, they were little, or they, they were grown by then? Uh, they were... When I first started teaching, they were relatively young yet. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but uh, again, I, I'm, I come from the school that you know, I can live without some sleep, you know. And I always used to joke, you know, sleep is for old people. And now that I'm an old person, I still don't seem to get a whole lot of sleep. I'm very active. I like to engage myself in, in different things, and I, you know, I don't. You know, my wife has always been supportive of it, too. She said, you know, why don't you give it a try? See what happens. What's the worst that could happen? You don't like it, you don't you don't continue doing it, you know. But I think if you're afforded the opportunity to try something, be it, you know, a different, different avenue from what you're doing or, you know, at least give it a try. Because how do you know whether you're going to like it or not unless you do try? And, and in my case, going into teaching was something that I enjoyed. Now working for Lucas Millop is something I enjoy as well. Um, it, it's kind of a, a building block kind of thing. Otherwise, I think you find you work your career and then you retire, and sometimes now you're going to find out you've got nothing else to do but work. And uh, that's never been a problem for me. So. Well, I think what you said is true because for me, I was doing air conditioning for a long time, and then an opportunity came to do cascade refrigeration and cryogenic freezing didn't know anything about it 
and tried it out for, you know, worked at it for a few years and became certified and worked and got some training and with some people long past, a, a gentleman named Frank Fulkerson. And, and Frank was considered, still I think considered, the father or the grandfather of Cascade Systems. Um, and then got a chance to do supermarkets for a while. But it, what you said is true about the trade where there are so many opportunities and if you don't take those opportunities, before you know it, you're an old guy like you and I are, and, um, or at least me, because you're still incredibly young. And, <laughs> and um, you know, before you know it, 30 years have gone by and you're like, oh my God, what do I do? Exactly, exactly, yeah. One thing I've always said, especially to the young, younger kids, you know, try the different avenues within the trade. Never get good at something you don't like to do, because then it becomes your job. Then you're not going to be happy if you're doing something you don't like to do. But if you've got some various skills and various backgrounds, you know, you can, with any given company, there's different avenues and different types of work you can do. So, so give them a try, or even go outside with you. Know, some people get into sales. You know, uh, and, you know, I'm doing basically technical support now. I would have never thought, you know, 20 years back that I would be doing anything like this. But, but I was, I guess I was smart enough to, to give it a try and smart enough to see that, you know, this isn't such a bad thing. And I, I do enjoy it. And that, that's, but if I didn't, I wouldn't be doing it either. So, so Lucas comes calling. You, you accept the position, and I would assume when you took the position, they had no trade show slash platform that, that you have now. Can you tell about how you developed that? Because I would assume you're the one that developed not the trade show part, the booths and stuff, but the actual standing out on a corner because that's really what you do. You stand on a corner, you stand in a classroom, you stand in a building, and you teach brazing. How did you develop that? Well, I had the skills to do it. And what I what, what Lucas brought to the table was the, the background information. You know, a lot of people know how to braze, but what they don't understand is when it doesn't work, what 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 have I done wrong and what can I do to correct it? So your understanding of different alloys and how they react to metals is what, what Lucas brought to the table for me. I could braise, but, you know, I didn't necessarily know, well, when it doesn't work, what, what, what's going on here? What, what's the properties of this material that doesn't make this want to attach to what? So, you know, that, that, that's what was helpful in that I had the hands-on. I can work at torque. You know, I'm comfortable in tight places. You know, that's what scares, what a lot of scares a lot of people is the minute they light up a torch and this comes out of there, they think it's dangerous. And it really is not as long as you follow some safety precautions. So the combination of my skills using the torch and now the, the technical backdrop for the alloy is concerned is what makes this. And then what I had to do is develop basically a PowerPoint presentation and put these two together. And then my my classes basically are broken up into a PowerPoint presentation and then a hands-on on the second half. So we do a short hour, hour and a half PowerPoint, 
and then we do another hour, hour and a half hands-on. And then during the hands-on, I show people how to, how to join the metals together, and then they're given the opportunity to do it themselves. So that when, I, when I'm watching them and I see them doing something right or something wrong, we can talk about it and correct it right away. And uh, I, I think for the most part, people walked away with, and I've been teaching this for, you know, nine years now, and I run across a lot of people that are my age that have been raising for a long time, but have been raising incorrectly, and they walk away from a class that I have and say, boy, you know, I wish I'd have known that 25 years ago. <laughs> I go, you know, that's, but you afforded yourself the opportunity to learn something today, and hopefully at least from this point forward, you're going to be better at it. I remember I went to an AHR Expo in, in Las Vegas quite a, quite a few years back. And there was a brazing demonstration by another brazing company. Um, and the and there's and there's a lot of them out there. There's a lot of brazing companies out there who make rods and things like that. And there the I watched the guy braze two pieces of aluminum together, tubing, and I watched him burn a giant hole <laughs> in the side of the tube. And he says, Oh, you saw what you saw what happened there. He says the tube the tube turned. It, the tube turned and it, and it turned and it, and it tore the metal. And I'm like, no, no, you got it too hot. He goes, no, no, the tube turned. It, it turned in the middle of the braze and that's what tore the metal. It was, it was not funny to see, but it was funny to see him just instead of just saying, uh, I, I screwed up on that one and that's not the way to do it. Is there any funny stories that you have where you were teaching and then you were like, I can't lie my way out of this one? Yes, especially you know, the the most difficult braze out there is, is brazing aluminum. But one because most people have never done it before, and it reacts so much different than than copper does. So uh, the biggest thing, and, and oftentimes, you know, I mean, if you jump into a situation, all of a sudden you start to braze, you can very easily overheat the material, especially aluminum, and it melts. Uh, and I've done that, and I'll look right at them and I'll go, "See, I did this wrong." But I'm going to tell you now. I'm going. To, you're going to. I know why I did it wrong. If this was something you were done without this kind of instruction, you would not have known what you've done wrong, other than melted it. So why did you melt it? Well, you reached 1,281 degrees, and at 1,281 degrees, aluminum melts. So that's the key to understand what the melting point is and how it reacts with the alloy, which has a different melting point. In that case, the aluminum alloy melts at at about 900 degrees. So the key is to keep the surface temperature below below 1,200 degrees, but slightly above the 900 to get the alloy to flow. But because we are human, still we're going to make a mistake, and sometimes we'll still, and same with copper, we can melt copper in, in the same respect, you know. But now at least they'll understand, you know, why they melted it or why they didn't heat it. You know, the other drawback is a lot of people do not, eat the surface enough, or they melt the rod, but they don't get the surface hot enough for the alloy to flow. So you're saying then that when you melt a piece of tubing, you're doing it intentionally to show them what not to do. 
sometimes not. Okay, I, I want to make sure because if I see Bob do that, I want to say to myself, that Bob is a giver. He just showed me what not to do. <laughs> well, knowing what to do is just as important as knowing what not to do. So. Have you had any... Um, like people that have come through, because you, do, well, let me ask you before I go, how many people approximately have you taught brazing in your nine years? Like, have they ever said, wow, you had a huge show today? We, you know, you hit 3,000 people. Oh, my goodness. I guess, you know, if, if my classes average, you know, 25 to 30, I, you know, we've got to be talking, you know, nine years now, you know, thousands, you know, uh, you know, it, you know, I, I don't keep keep track of that mm-hmm. per se, but it, it has to be thousands. Well, then, if you also add in the students I've had in my teaching experience at school, you know, that's probably another five or six hundred there as well. So, so the numbers are considerable now after this, this much time. Have you ever taught a class and the group has been? so against a specific product like today like just like yesterday i was in a chat with a guy about a micro channel coil that said yes you can use in this case it was a solder weld you can use a solder weld and he says well i'm not using solder weld and i said okay well you can use the lucas millhop the i think it's the ab822 l AL-822, the AL-822 um, rod to do the same thing. Because I said, well, the solder weld. And he said, no. He says, I can't buy it. And I said, okay. And then he said, the AL-822, 822. And I said, okay. And then even was saying that you can fix it. And I have fixed multiple coils and pressure tested. They still argue. Do you have classes where people, even after you do a, a class and a session about brazing aluminum, or a product that they still argue? Uh, yes, and to be honest with you, they'll argue, but they don't. They don't have. Uh, they're arguing about something that they're just. They feel they're using a particular product, and it's worked. And there's nothing else out there that works. We have to be honest. You know, there are lots of products out there. Some work better than others, of course. But you know, uh, it's it's more of a technique. That that, re, that will require good results, you know. And I, I can use competitors' products, and I can do a pretty good job as well. I still feel though that uh, and Lucas Millhoff's been around a long time. They provide the combination of the some of the best products ever, and along with the training to to back it up. You still have to understand uh, what what to use and where, and then how to use it properly. But some people just you know, they're just, they, they're repetitious where uh, this is all I've ever used and this is all that's ever going to work. But I've done, I've pulled people aside later and said, okay, bring your product in here, bring, I'll use our product and, you know, we'll, we'll compare the two. And in most cases, I can convince them that either they're, they're very similar or, or the Lucas product is, is superior. Well, the reason I asked, not so much about the Lucas part of it, is do you have older techs? I'm going to say this especially older techs. I think younger techs today, they love technology. 
they've got so much to teach older people like myself. Like I learn a ton of stuff off my guys that we have that have been in the trade from one to five years. Um, because they're, they're using the, uh, the cordless devices. They're using the smart probes. They're using the products that Bluetooth to their wireless device. When, when I see the arguments, I see the arguments out of older techs who no matter what you set in front of them, Lucas, Soderwell, Harris, whatever it is, it's going to be an argument that aluminum microchannel cannot be fixed. I don't care what you use, you got to buy a new coil. How do we change those guys? Or do we wait for them to retire out and say, I'm glad you're gone? <laughs> well, there's always going to be a percentage of people that you can't change their mind. But what you've got to do is be able to, to demonstrate in front of them and in front of their own eyes and with their own hands that it can be done. And this is what I often say to them. You know, I'm here to, to show you that it can be done. Once you leave here, I want you to be comfortable in knowing that you can and you'll do it correctly and with good results. But if you choose not to, that, that's nothing I, there's nothing I can do to, to change your mind. But you can't use the argument that it can't be repaired. The, the call will be yours whether you want to make that repair or not. Mm-hmm. So now it's no longer that, you know, you know the, the old line, oh, you can't fix aluminum. Well, yes, you can. But, but then they look at me, well, I don't know how. Well, that's why I'm here. Mm-hmm. And that's why you listen. In a few minutes, you'll be able to do it yourself. But unfortunately, you know, once they leave wherever you're at, you know, you can't follow them around and say, hey, this is your opportunity to give that a try. Some of them, some of them are held back by the companies they work for. They'll tell them, well, if you have an aluminum repair, you know, we're just going to replace that coil. Mm-hmm. We're not going to repair it. So, Is there so a... It, when you do go to the training sessions, what's the number one requested thing to learn? Like the session to learn? Like I'm sure everybody's joined copper to copper. Um, aluminum is becoming more and more prevalent. What is the number one thing you're requested that companies and individuals request from Bob the Brazer? The aluminum repair. Mm. There's no doubt about it. Um, because it is new and it's different. Uh, but when we when we do give a seminar, <clears throat> the aluminum is part of the presentation, of course. But we also <clears throat> will will still do the the copper to copper applications where we find that people that have been doing this for a long time have not been doing it correctly. So ultimately, what we want to do is be able to teach people how to join materials together and to be effective at it without leaks. Whether it's aluminum, whether it's copper, whether it's steel, whether it's brass, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that's the key, you know, to teach them how to do it properly. You know, I don't see as much copper to brass anymore like I used to. I mean, it's there. Um, used to be copper to brass was the thing to do. Now I think it's aluminum. Um, are we doing a lot of copper to steel? I know in refrigeration, market refrigeration, we do. Are you doing yes. much training with copper to steel? You're, you're, you're going to see a lot more applications of that in the supermarket industry or larger commercial applications where you're, you're joining steel to copper in compressors and, and things of that nature. But on the 
on the residential side, you're not going to see any any kind of copper to steel application. Majority of everything you're going to see is copper to copper or copper to, to aluminum and maybe a little bit of copper to brass. Well, we're at 47 minutes, 48 minutes just now. Is there is there anything you wanted to leave the group with? Any Bob-isms, Bob the Brazer-isms? Well, I, I think it's important that if, if people have uh, have interest in going into the trades, to, to certainly give it a try. Um, I, I think you do have to sacrifice a little bit of something, you know, as far as uh, is your education, but open yourself up to the opportunities. Give them a try, and then once you've been into the into whatever you're into for any length of time, you can kind of follow the path which which interests you the most and brings you the most joy. I mean, I always found it very very good to come home at night and say, you know, I just saved that that customer a million dollars in product, <laughs> you know, and makes me, you know, you're going to have to pat yourself on the back because unfortunately no matter who you work for uh, there isn't a great tendency out there to to reward or congratulate people but you have to be able to to do that to yourself and occasionally you're going to get that from customers you know that are over over the top uh you know just overjoyed in how much money you just saved them and uh especially you know the the times we're going through now it's got to be even more difficult to get people to, to come out to make any kind of repairs and things. So, again, you know, work hard at what you do. If you enjoy it, follow that direction. And uh, it's, it's a lot easier to work and do something you enjoy as opposed to something you're only going to do for money. Mm-hmm. And if you're really good, you can enjoy it and make money at the same time. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, for everybody knows, this is Bob Criston, uh, also known as Bob the Brazer, and he is the teaching guru of brazing at Lucas Millhop. Um, and of course, I leave every podcast with the same, which is, you know what, work safe, be safe, and please, there's so much craziness that goes on in everyday world. Wrap your arms around the ones you love. There's people out there that need your help and need your support. Go find them. Go take care of them. Um, get them the things that they need, be there when they need a, an ear and when they need a hug, and just, man, just just be a really great human being. As always, again, work safe, be safe, and we'll see you next time.